Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I am the other host, Aaron Mate. How are you, Katie? I'm good. Summer is officially here, I believe. It's official. It's official, we're making, guys. We're, we're making it official right now. This Put is a it. ring on it. Yeah. Put a ring on it. Summer's here. This and is your official summer announcement. Not only do you come to Useful Idiots for hot political takes, but we give you very important calendar-based announcements. Mm-hmm. We are a one-stop shop for that. Pop culture takes. Really, who could ask for anything more? <laughs> you, you could, but you'd be very demanding. That was the slogan for Toyota. Remember when we were kids? Who could ask for anything more? Toyota. No. Maybe that's oh, before wow. your time. Yeah. Wait, you think uh, it's a Canadian thing? Marketing campaign? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. We're going to have anyway, to see if it was all North America or not. Yeah. It was catchy. Yeah. That was Toyota's slogan. Who could ask for anything more? And then at the end of the ad, everybody jumps up and says Toyota. Nice. Oh, yeah. I do. Toyota. Does it say that yeah. at the end? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now I remember. Yeah. Bam. Cultural references left and right on useful yeah. idiots, uh, which you can get more of when you sign up at usefulidiots.substack.com for all kinds of bonus content and also usefulidiots.locals.com if you're yeah. local. Yep, and don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts and also subscribe to us on Rumble and on YouTube. And you really do want to give yourself the gift of either a Substack or a Locals uh, subscription because then you get, as Aaron said, more content, you get extended interviews, and you get the Thursday Throwdown bonus, which is a weekly gift. It is your midweek dose of media madness where we react to cable news clips, and it's always a great time. So do yourselves a favor. Don't do us a favor. Do yourselves a favor. You're welcome, everyone. And become exclusive locals or Substack members. Should we get to our four basic food groups? Yeah, let's do it. We got Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? So, Aaron, what do we have for the Democrats suck? All right. Well, the debt ceiling crisis has been averted with a deal between Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And guess what is not being cut? Military spending. What is being cut, though, is some social spending, including uh, new requirements that make it harder for low-income Americans to get food aid. So here is Ken Klippenstein with the contrast of what this debt ceiling deal means. So there it is. Uh, Biden and the GOP agree to a two-year budget debt limit increase, includes enhanced work requirements for food aid. But Somebody who does not have to do anything to get more money is the Pentagon because the Biden-McCarthy deal is set to increase military spending from $800 billion to $885 billion. So $85 billion in new military spending on top of the existing $800 billion. Meanwhile, if you're a low-income American, it just become harder for you to receive food aid. Right. And of course, this whole ceiling, debt ceiling crisis is a manufactured crisis because the Democrats, when they were in control, could have raised the debt ceiling. And uh, of course, the Republicans are also responsible for major spending, even though they pretend to be deficit hawks. So this is all political theater on both sides. You're welcome, America. Well, somebody who is content with this deal, even though he acknowledges that it will make people uh, go hungrier, is Dan. Pfeiffer. He is a former Obama administration official, now with our friends, our good friends at uh, Pod Save America. And this is uh, his headline, which uh, David Sirota pointed out. Biden's strategy worked, Dan Pfeiffer says, but look what he says on the inside of his article. This policy will increase hunger and poverty. 
So Biden's strategy worked. And also it will increase hunger and poverty. So <laughs> there we have it. I appreciate the candor from uh, yeah. this Obama bro. Yeah. Thank you, Obama bros. Thank you for bringing, helping bring us this, this uh, terrible deal. And hence why Democrats suck. Well, uh, the nice thing about this issue is, as I said, it's political theater on both sides, and it highlights not just why Democrats suck, but Republicans suck. So let's take a look at what Kevin McCarthy had to say about this deal and work requirements. For things we bought that we can return, like COVID money, money to China and others, we're bringing that back. We might have a child that has no job, no dependents, but sitting on a couch. We're going to encourage that person to get a job and have to go to work, which gives them worth and value. We're going to look at other things, too, to make the economy stronger. So he's doing people a favor with these work requirements, because you could have someone sitting on a couch feeling really worthless. This sadistic agreement, uh, sadistic deal, is just what they need, because you got all these people sitting on a couch. Did I hear him right that he said it's a child sitting on a couch? Oh, yeah, right. Well, that's another yeah, that's another great aspect of it is that this is all also very compatible with the Republican move to re, uh, reintroduce child labor. So the deal centers around increasing child labor, basically. That's what yeah. McCarthy's that's about. what his well, that's okay. what his humble brag is. Thank you for pointing that out. I, I'm so like um, immune to being shocked by their uh, standing child labor that I forgot to mention that part. We can't have children sitting on the couch. No. And, uh, you know, I don't know, doing their homework or right. watching without, TV, or, like, got to make it go to work. Yeah. Gotta and, and, without, and of course, he, I like the way he says without dependence. Like, should we be encouraging children to have children when they're children? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, that well, is probably the, the result of the abstinence only that I'm sure he pushes. So maybe he's just being consistent. <laughs> but yes, you did hear that correctly. It is about children. Who he doesn't want to give childhoods to, I guess. No, it's the childhood uh, deprivation deal. Yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Okay, for isn't that weird, check out this, what I think is a weird exchange on Twitter. So what happened was a uh, friend of the show, Roger Waters, has been touring the world with his amazing This Is Not A Drill tour. And as part of the show, and this has been a staple of Roger's performances since The Wall, which came out more than 40 years ago. Uh, Roger dresses up as a fascist character on stage. And some really disingenuous people online who hate Roger's views because, among other things, he criticizes Israel – took this to mean that Roger Waters was dressing up as a Nazi. And they said, how dare Roger Waters do this, especially during his performances in uh, Germany. So this led to this exchange where both the government of Ukraine and the government of Israel teamed up to troll Roger Waters on Twitter. And of course, Ukraine doesn't like Roger Waters because he's critical of the US-led proxy war inside Ukraine against Russia. So this was the exchange between two governments trolling a rock star on Twitter. So Israel says, good morning to everyone but Roger Waters, who spent the evening in Berlin, yes, Berlin, desecrating the memory of Anne Frank and the six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. Uh, 
So, of course, that's not what Roger Waters did. He dresses up as a fascist character in his show uh, to impugn fascism. Right, and To exactly. call it out. And he pays tribute to people like Anne Frank. Also, by the way, his own father was killed fighting the Nazis right. in the Second World War. That's a big part of Roger Waters' history and his political background. It's really... I think helps shape him into the person he is today. So Israel yeah. says that, and look how Ukraine responds to Israel. Ukraine says Roger Waters started out as a rock idol, ended up as a rock bottom. But I'm bum. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, it needs to be in there. Just some, some, some. Uh, I'm just gonna punch up that joke. I think you got to say ends up at rock bottom or ends up rock bottom. I don't think you can say a rock bottom. Well, this is just a linguistic, idiomatic thing. Yeah. So basically, yeah. it's these two governments that uh, also happen to be clients of the U.S. teaming up on a rock star. It's just right. uh, social media is a strange place. It really is. And I've I've spoken to Roger a bunch about this because I've had him on a couple of times to update. Uh, as, as people probably know, we started this petition because Frankfurt was trying to cancel his concert. That failed. So uh, we have multiple attempts to kind of uh, find other ways to cancel him. And when that failed, and, and honestly, it's because of his being an outspoken defender of Palestinian human rights, but that failed. So now they're trying to say that it's uh, he's desecrating Anne Frank's memory. Now, he puts Anne Frank's name up because he thinks she's a hero. That's what yeah. he does. He puts other people's names up. He puts up Shireen Abouakle. He puts up the name of Julian Assange. He puts up the names of lots of people who have been um, killed or had their lives made difficult by uh, by state governments, basically. Uh, and again, as you pointed out, Aaron, he's not dressing up as a, f first of all, he's not a Nazi character. He's a, fa a fictitious uh, fascist character, but the context and perspective is everything. He's not being this character because he likes this character. It's a scathing critique of that character. It's a warning against right-wing, fascist populists and he when i was talking about this he said you know a figure like bolsonaro that's it so people don't want to let him speak his mind or perform because they really just want to cancel him over his views on palestine and over his views on the ukraine uh proxy war even though what's interesting is he's been very critical of putin as well he's not a putin apologist he's condemned putin but he also condemns nato and the west so that's his crime this whole thing has been so disingenuous, right. and uh, but that's what happens. And um, you know, Roger Waters—it's an amazing show, and if, yeah, if it you have to see it, I really recommend it. Yeah. All right. Well, for isn't that terrible? We have uh, a, an interesting story, a sad story. Uh, it's about a fertility doctor accused of using his own sperm. Uh, he dies in crash of hand-built plane. So uh, a New York fertility doctor who was accused of using his own sperm to impregnate several patients has died in a plane crash. What happened was this character, this doctor, Dr. Morris Wortman, 72 of Rochester, was a passenger in an experimental aircraft that went down uh, Sunday in a pasture in Orleans County. The pilot was also killed. But um, apparently what happened was that the wings of the aircraft became detached. This is... A sad ending, but it, you know, it he, it was a an experimental kind of like handmade plane. And I feel like maybe this doctor has kind of a God complex uh, because, as we know, he impregnated lots of women while not telling them that it was his sperm. 
which is kind of a bad move, I would say. And it was really scary because what happened is that uh, reading this article, he was sued in 2021 by the daughter of one of his patients who became pregnant in the 1980s. The lawsuit said the doctor secretly used his own sperm while telling the patient the donor had been a local medical student. It said the doctor kept the secret even after the daughter, his biological offspring, became his gynecology patient. And she discovered this through one of these DNA tests, and, and she learned that she had at least nine siblings. I just think that, you know, sometimes doctors do have God complexes, and um, sometimes they have Icarus complexes, and they fly too close to the sun, literally. Um, this is DIY culture, which has gone too far. He impregnates his patients himself, and he flies his planes himself, and yeah. he crashes. So, you know. Crashes, yeah it's a warning you know don't do everything on your own you know yeah. let right know, let others let others in yeah let other, others in yeah but leave whether it's pilots or other or other sperm donors right whether it's right whether you're talking about aircraft or sperm step aside be a good ally yeah. step aside step back also i don't know why people fly their own planes i mean th in this case i guess it was with a pilot but i don't know why he had to go with with a uh, i guess this is one step better than flying your own plane but still going in an experimental aircraft is never a good idea just yeah, i don't get it either but people yeah. are really into it you know they're I've really into it it's really weird i've spoken to a few people who fly their own planes and they just they it's the only way for them to travel they can't do it otherwise it's it's a thing yeah um well that is yeah. terrible that is terrible and i'm sorry to him and his who knows how many kids that he has out there they probably don't even know mm. he probably has more kids than than realize it mm. yeah anyway so that is indeed a terrible we're really excited to be bringing you an interview with Nick Terse, who is a contributing writer for The Intercept, a fellow at the Nation Institute and the managing editor of TomDispatch.com. He is the author most recently of Next Time They'll Come to Count the Dead, War and Survival in South Sudan, as well as Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. And he's talking to us about a major investigative piece he just did at The Intercept called Blood on His Hands, Survivors of Kissinger's Secret War in Cambodia Reveal Unreported Mass Killings. All right, let's go to Nick Terse. So Nick, how did this investigation even come into being? Uh, when I was a graduate student at Columbia University, I was working on a project on post-traumatic stress among uh, US Vietnam veterans. and in the course of that project, I came upon a group of records called uh, the Vietnam War Crimes Working Group Records. Uh, basically, it was a set of files set up by a secret Pentagon task force uh, that tracked, uh, and when they could, tamp down war crimes allegations. Uh, this was set up in the wake of the My Lai Massacre, where U.S. troops killed 500 Vietnamese civilians in 1969. The Pentagon never wanted to get caught flat-footed by an atrocity scandal again. So uh, when I found those records, I eventually used them to conduct investigations uh, in the U.S., speaking with uh, witnesses and uh, perpetrators in Vietnam, speaking to witnesses and survivors. And it led to my uh, book on U.S. war crimes in Vietnam, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. But there were there was a subset of records that dealt specifically with U.S. crimes in Cambodia, and basically I I uh, took those records, I did additional research in the National Archives, and I tried to replicate that uh, 
in, in Cambodia, uh, taking those records, tracking down American military personnel that were involved. And then I went to Cambodia and visited uh, 13 villages on the border with Vietnam to the 75 uh, Cambodian uh, survivors of the war. And you know, that's, that's how the investigation came about, how I was able to piece together the story. Wow. And did you have a translator with you or just curious when you did the interviews? Uh, yes, uh, I, I don't speak Khmer, so I had a uh, translator with me the entire time. So this is a very extensive investigation of Henry Kissinger's uh, role in the bombing of Cambodia. Well, can you give us the uh, top line findings from your reporting? It's long been known that Henry Kissinger has a lot of blood on his hands for Cambodia. But, um, you know, this investigation using this exclusive archive of, of U.S. military documents and these uh, uh, never before published interviews. It shows that Kissinger is responsible for uh, far more civilian deaths than than we knew about in Cambodia, and that the violence was uh, far more intimate uh, than we knew. Uh, a lot of what was known about uh, Kissinger's uh, bombings in Cambodia was the so-called secret bombing. Uh, this was conducted by sky-high B-52 bombers uh, about a mile up, dropping uh, 30 tons of uh, munitions on, on targets. But uh, what I found was that there was also a lot of uh, attacks by lower flying U.S. fighter bombers and also by helicopter gunships flying at treetop level. In addition to this, also uh, there were attacks on villages by U.S. and allied South Vietnamese troops on the ground. So it adds to the, uh, the death toll that Henry Kissinger's uh, uh, has for for his uh, his work with him. And can you describe? Uh, can you remind listeners why uh, Nixon and Kissinger were bombing Cambodia in the first place? You know, Richard Nixon, security advisor, uh, in 1969, they won the White House uh, on a pledge to uh, end the Vietnam War with uh, peace and honor. They said they had a secret plan to do so. Uh, they had no plan beyond expanding the war uh, into both uh, Laos neighboring Laos and, uh, and Cambodia. About a month uh, into office, uh, Kissinger sat down with his uh, military attache, his advisor, uh, Alexander, and they hatched a plan. Uh, they came up with something that they called Operation Menu, and this was uh, to be the covert bombing of Cambodia. Uh, they did this because they knew that Congress would uh, never authorize the bombing of a, a neutral country, and there'd be a tremendous public backlash. So uh, they created this uh, a, a conspiracy, basically, to uh, bomb Cambodia. Uh, and, you know, they were going after what they called the enemy enclaves there, North Vietnamese troops, South Vietnamese guerrillas. Uh, but they claimed that these strikes were occurring in South Vietnam. And they basically they took the the actual records that existed uh they burned them they created false records that they fed to the pentagon and that were then fed to congress uh so they're lying to the american people lying to congress you know it's a very hands-on project for for henry kissinger not only did he come up with a plan but um there was a uh, a colonel serving with the joint chiefs of staff named ray sitton who would come to the white house with target lists and a map and Kissinger would actually point out each target, strike here, strike there, extremely hands-on. And Sitton would back-channel uh, this information to the field, bypassing the military chain of command. Uh, so 
you know, you know Kissinger was responsible for every one of the 3,000 plus strikes uh, that were carried out part of the secret bombing. Let's go to a clip uh, featuring Henry Kissinger. He was recently interviewed by Ted Koppel of CBS on the occasion of Kissinger's 100th birthday. And Kissinger called his uh, operations, his bombing of Cambodia, a necessary step. There is no question when you and President Nixon conceived of the bombing of Cambodia, you, you did it in order to interdict. Come on. We have been bombing with drones and all kinds of weapons. Every guerrilla unit that we were opposing, it's been the same in every administration of either party. The consequences in Cambodia were particular. Uh, come on now. No, no, no. Look, we're we're, we're particular. This is a program you're doing because I'm going to be 100 years old. Right. And you're picking a topic of something that happened 60 years ago. You have to know that it was a necessary step. So that's Henry Kissinger speaking to Ted Koppel. Nick, uh, you named one of your books after one of Kissinger's most infamous quotes. Um, anything that flies on anything that moves. Uh, what was Kissinger talking about when he gave that directive? You know, this is a uh, December 9th, 1970 call that Kissinger actually got from, from Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon was in a rage about Cambodia. Uh, yeah, he was ranting and raving to Kissinger. And, you know, he said, uh, you know, these are his words. He said, the, the Air Force is just farting around in Cambodia. I want uh, us to go in and crack the hell out of them. He said, I want everything that flies, uh, anything that moves. And Kissinger, just on the phone, you can read the transcript. That's linked to my article. He says, right, yes, exactly, Mr. President. Hangs up. He calls his military attache, Alexander Haig, and says, it's an order. It's to be done. Anything that flies on anything that moves. And you can see the results of this uh, in the field almost immediately. In the course of the next several weeks, the number of uh, U.S. helicopter gunship attacks in Cambodia, this is exactly what uh, Nixon told Kissinger he wanted, helicopter gunships, uh, they triple over the next several weeks, and they continue to rise through the spring of 1971. And, you know, I, uh, in, the, in my investigation, I found a, a case where there's one of these helicopter gunship attacks following this order. Uh, it was conducted on a village in Cambodia, uh, what they call the U.S. hunter-killer team. Three helicopters came in, circled the village. They saw people below with bicycles. Uh, they made the assumption that these must be, uh, it must be some sort of enemy supply convoy. And they began shooting at the village with uh, machine guns, firing uh, rockets at the village. And they wounded uh, at least uh, two dozen Cambodians there. Uh, so these are, are, are people, they, they were not carrying any weapons. They're, they're lying on the ground, bleeding, some are dead. And the U.S., uh, one of the helicopters lands a South Vietnamese allied force with a U.S. officer, and they set about looting this village. Uh, they're taking everything they can get their hands on, animals, you know, chickens and pigs, uh, Cambodian currency, radios, anything. 
the American officer goes and grabs a uh, Suzuki motorbike and falls it onto the helicopter. Now, there are other Americans on the scene who spotted a, a young girl who was shot, bleeding. Uh, they wanted to bring her aboard and take her for medical care. Uh, but the officer uh, who had pulled the motorbike on board said negative. He said uh, that the chopper was now weighed down by the motorbike. There's no room for the girl. So this five-year-old girl shot, bleeding, in desperate need of medical care, was left there to die. And you know, this, this is the uh, Henry Kissinger's legacy on the ground in Cambodia. This is uh, what happened after he relayed these orders from, from Nixon. Anything that flies on anything that moves. Uh, very little interpretation, and it had real-world consequences, uh, life or death consequences on the ground in Cambodia. You say in your article that when you tried to get comments from uh, Kissinger, he either kind of um, obfuscated or replied with sarcasm. Can you share some of those responses? Sure. Uh, I had a real tough time uh, getting an interview with Henry Kissinger. You know, I, I called this office dozens, you know, probably a hundred times. Uh, he was always too busy to speak with me. Uh, I sent registered letters. I, uh, I emailed. Nothing worked. So I found he was speaking at a State Department conference in, in Washington, D.C. So I went down there to do an ambush interview with him. Uh, he gave the keynote address. And afterward, to everyone's surprise, including my own, uh, he opened up the floor to questions. So he got a couple softball questions, and then I elbowed my way up to the microphone. And I asked him to uh, square a circle. Uh, you know, before the Senate, he was being confirmed for uh, Secretary of State at the end of the Nixon administration. He was already uh, National Security Advisor. And, you know, he was asked about the bombing of Cambodia. And he said, uh, we weren't bombing Cambodia. We weren't bombing Cambodia. We were bombing North Vietnamese in Cambodia. And this has always been uh, his excuse. Uh, I found that there's a footnote in one of his books where he mentions that, uh, you know, and, and takes, you know, some modicum of responsibility for killing 50,000 Cambodians. So I asked him, how could you kill 50,000 Cambodians and not bomb Cambodians? Yeah, explain yourself. Uh, Kissingerian tactics really muddied the question. Uh, talked for a long time. They took my mic away and allowed him to just keep expounding. And, uh, you know, he, he was sort of able to, to get away with it as he often does, but uh, I couldn't let it rest. So after the talk, I ran down to a receiving line uh, where there were all sorts of Kissinger sycophants down there. They wanted to shake his hand, take a picture with him. Uh, and I, I, I got him again and put my questions to him. He got visibly angry about it and told me I was just trying to catch him in a lie. And I, I told him I wanted a substantive answer. And, uh, you know, he he wouldn't give it to me. So then I had asked, uh, when, when I was in Cambodia, many times I was asked the question, why were we bombed? Uh, Cambodian survivors never understood this. It wasn't their war. It just arrived on their doorstep one day, uh, and and you know they they were tormented by it for for years, but didn't understand it. So I put those questions to him. It was specifically one woman, Miss Lorne, who had lost two members of her family. She had survived several attacks herself, and she asked, "Why did we drop? Why did they drop bombs here?" So I asked Kissinger to answer her question, and 
it was a very strange response. Um, you know, <laughs> I was never exactly sure how to take it, although, you know, make of it what you will. He told me to play with it and have a good time. <laughs> That's those are his exact words. It's a verbatim quote. Uh, I, I took it down immediately. That was his response. Then he stomped his cane on the floor and stalked off. And you know that that was the last I saw of Henry Kissinger. He didn't show up for the next two days of the conference. Uh, just he never came back. But that, that was my brief, uh, you know, fleeting moment speaking with him. Very odd response uh, when when challenged about the war crimes. Wow. And by contrast, Nick, as you mentioned, you spoke to 75 survivors and witnesses in Cambodia of Kissinger's bombings. Um, what stands out to you from those interviews that you did? What, what most stood out to me was the, the amount of trauma people were still dealing with. These people that I talked with were real survivors because they not only survived the American war, tremendous onslaught, but then after that, the, uh, the Khmer Rouge genocide, which killed about 20% of the, the population uh, in Cambodia. Uh, so, I mean, they, they'd experienced tremendous levels of violence, tremendous levels of trauma. But uh, even what happened after the American War, it didn't dull in any way uh, the suffering that they'd gone through and, and the trauma they'd experienced. People, they were willing to talk with me about it. and. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm humbled by that and always be grateful for it. But they, uh, you know, it, it was it was the trauma was still so fresh. And, you know, as I mentioned, people were were just perplexed by it. These were people in rural farm folk living in uh, very remote hamlets. And they'd never even seen anything like uh, U.S. technology before. When the helicopters first appeared overhead, they, most people told me they came out and just stared at them in awe because they'd never seen anything like this. These, these giant machines, they didn't know what they were. They didn't know why they were there. Uh, but they really quickly learned to fear them. And they said these helicopters would just come. They didn't know why. They didn't have a framework to make sense of it, but would come and just start shooting up their villages, firing uh, incendiary rockets that would set their homes on fire. And this went on for years uh, without any sort of rhyme or reason. We didn't understand it. Uh, but, you know, they, they were dealing with, with so much loss and trauma from that. And often people would, would break down while they were telling me about it. You know, that sometimes they would uh, decompensate and just uh, go silent. I try to, uh, you know, let them have some time uh, to, to recover. And eventually they would, they would come back you know, they wanted to tell their stories, but it was very painful, very difficult, very traumatic. And, you know, one part of your story, Nick, that people might not be aware of is that Kissinger taped himself speaking about all these crimes that he was committing. Can you talk about this recording system that he had set up uh, to uh, record himself and Nixon inside the White House? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was bone chilling, all those atrocities and the, uh, you know, 100 year old man who has never been held accountable for them. Uh, that's it's it's unbelievable just to hear yeah. about 
all the crimes that Kissinger committed, and he's still revered in establishment media, some sort of, uh, you know, a voice of authority. Right. A pundit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations to Nick Turris for all the work he's done. Uh, Nick's been working on the, you know, U.S. wars in Vietnam, Cambodia, and and Laos for um, for years now. And so this new report from him, Kissinger's Killing Fields, is just the uh, latest to add to the body of work that he's done. And it's very, very impressive. Um, you know, without reporting like this, it's many people would not know about all the crimes that the U.S. committed right. in, in Vietnam and, and in Cambodia. But certainly the, the victims don't forget, as, as Nick reminds us, having interviewed even some survivors uh, of Kissinger's uh, bombings. Well, thank you again to Nick, and thank you all so much for watching the show. And to see the full interview with Nick, which is really fascinating and moving and important, you can go to usefulidiots.locals.com or usefulidiots.substack.com. All right, everybody. We'll see you next okay. week. Okay. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.